Hello and thanks for tuning in to the Race IndyCar podcast. My name is Jack Benyon, American editor at The Race. And last week, I promised you a special guest and listeners' questions answered for this episode. I think we've delivered on both. So we'll start by introducing my Cadillac driving colleague, J.R. Hildebrand. How was your journey back from Indy, JR? And tell us a little bit about Rosie. Uh, it was good, man. Yeah, we, um, you know, it's a 1960 Coupe de Ville, uh, which seemed like a particularly ill-advised uh, trip probably on the way out, but uh, made it out there just fine. And, uh, you know, at that point, the drive back was was the easy part, picking up hours going east to west. So cruise back into Colorado and and now in part because I've got sort of musical chairs of cars in my driveway, I'm just daily into the thing every day. So uh, it's been pretty fun. Looks pretty cool with a bike attached to the back of it as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. And without further ado, let's introduce our, our special guest who's dealing with 8 million emails and phone calls per second after uh, a couple of weekends ago. We've got Mike Shank joining us, who's writing his own legendary story across US motorsport and has just won the Indianapolis 500. So Mike, thanks for joining us. Have you, uh, have you and the team completed your celebrations successfully? And were there any kind of beer-induced legendary stories that you can tell us about or let us in on? Uh, uh, I'm, I think I'm over my last hangover. <laughs> <laughs> when and, you say last, uh, how I, many we, were there? Four. <laughs> and I'm not that's lying. an honest answer right there i like it uh so yeah we got after it pretty hard i you know we got a bunch of people that were really really happy um for us and it was genuine and i felt we you know we felt the love and uh um it's just been overwhelming the response you know it's it's a week now you know since it's happened and i suspect after another week or so it's gonna fade a little bit more but that's okay you know We've gotten so many well wishes and so many people that really uh, seem to actually care. I, I happen to actually think it was a pretty good race. I mean, Jared, I mean, you were in it, but uh, <laughs> it was a pretty good race. You could pass a bit. You could actually pull up on people if your car was good. Um, I thought it was exciting how it played out. It was a big chess match, which, you know, Elio, Elio did a great job, I think, against a, a guy that doesn't have his amount of experience. And, um, you know, and I think, I think, I think all of us needed it was the right win for the right guy at the right time. And, uh, and, and I think proof of that is NBC stand on Elio celebrating, you know, um, I think, you know, he's kind of the people's winner, you know, they were really happy for him and, and, and everyone felt that. You know? Awesome. Well, we've got a few questions for you ourselves, but we've also got some listener questions that have been sent in as well. So we've got the hard, com- we've got the yeah. hard compound on Twitter and they asked how have things changed for you after Indy? And I guess, uh, I guess uh, being a bit tired and dealing with a lot of requests is, is the answer to that. But yeah, how have things changed? Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, we, we won quite a bit of money, which is nice, <laughs> especially coming out of COVID. But uh, no, listen, it's way, it's way beyond the money, to be honest. And JR knows this as, as well as anybody. It just, you know, for us and, you know, we're, we're, we're fighting for respect and results and partners and we're kind of young at this as a company um it really just helps us with our marketing program partner programs legitimizes us um helps us with honda and and the oem which is really helpful um you know they were one of the critical pieces um that uh we needed to win this race in in honda and um it's you know it's it's time is definitely a little more precious sleep is a little bit too but you know i just got back in the gym today thank god it's been a while and and just trying to 
get things back to normal. And by the way, you know, we load Wednesday for Detroit, both series. So prototype cars running on Saturday night and IndyCar on both Saturday and Sunday. Uh, that's awesome, Mike. Um, I want to take it back a little bit further. So, you know, in 2012, you won the 24 hours. And at that time, coming from being a racing driver and working your way up the ladder from junior open wheel racing all the way up to this blue ribbon event, what did that mean to you? And how does it compare to this Indy 500 win? That's a good question. Um, so at that time, JR, that, you know, that win for us really came at the right time. Also, we needed to, um, we needed to have something to legitimize what we do. I mean, we've been there for a long time and I'd known you for a long time and, you know, kind of plucking away at in prototype and having some success and doing okay, financially making it without killing ourselves and, and this and that. But to really put it over the edge when I'm competing against the big teams we were, I needed something to legitimize us, to, to wake the world up to us, if you will. And the, the Rolex did that. And that was badass. That was really cool. You know, Jim France, you know, if I tell open wheel guys coming up the ladder, you know, it's all time. It's just the picking the right moments in time to have things happen. And for me, it was getting out of Toyota Atlantic back in the you know early 2000s and going to Jim France. He put his arm in, in Grand Am and IMSA he put his arm around us and just never let go. And I think he appreciated, you know, uh, what my wife and I had, you know, put up and, and, and put up to the bank and, to, you know, whatever we had to do to get the car bought on the, on, uh, on the track, appreciated that, put his arm around us and never let go. And that, that take it has literally taken us to the level we're at today. And uh, now the Indy 500 is, you know, times three, probably. Uh, over the Rolex, but you know, we try every year to win the Rolex is crazy hard, but, um, uh, this is, it's relatable in so far as that it's just the right time for the right thing to happen. That's absolutely the truth, you know. And going back to, you know, kind of feeding off that, Mike, you know, you were looking to enter IndyCar around that time, weren't you? And, you know, you didn't. Yeah, yeah. You'd been, and you'd been attending the Indy 500 since you were since you were pretty young, and you know it was a, a big part of your you know kind of commitment and what you wanted to do. And obviously, that finally came together in in 2017 with with Jim Meyer. And I guess I kind of wanted to dig into this with you because I don't really think Jim gets the kind of talk and and credit that he you know quite often deserves for for you know the effort yeah. that he's put into this team. And I just wondered if you could talk a bit more about you know. I think he's a lot closer to this team and a, a lot more important than people might think. And it's not just about the money. It's, you know, he, he's so much more to that, to the team, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, like, he's incredible. When he, you know, after we ran Jack Harvey in 2017, just one race, he called me in June of that year and said, why don't you come over? I'm going to retire here someday soon. And I, I want to be more involved. Uh, he's done 41 Indy 500s in a row. Uh, he's passionate. He's a central Indiana guy. Um, loves racing done very well, you know, so he can kind of do what he wants to do later in life here. And, um, so we went over and talked, didn't know him at all. I Googled him. I tried to back, I tried to network into his network to see if we knew any common people that didn't really work. Uh, you know, if, if you Google him, you know, he's the guy that does, you know, Howard Stern's deals and, you know, all these big stars deals out serious. And, um, and, and, but, but my God, how, how lucky did we get? I, I said it the other night at one of the parties in front of a big crowd. I just said, you know, exactly what you said. You know, he doesn't get a lot of the credit here, but he, he is so good. He is so good in the boardroom, on a telephone, in conference calls. He, he doesn't know the business like I know the business side of things, but uh, on the functioning, the operations of a racing team. But, man, on the business side and putting people together, relationships, he's super relatable. He sits around with me like polo shirts on and jeans and tennis shoes. 
and drinks beer or whatever, you know, every night, you know, at the speedway, we did that in front of our motorhomes every night. And, um, it's very common man type of deal. Right. And doesn't want the limelight, doesn't need it. Um, but brought a level of networking to us that's you can't replace with money. And, um, and he just loves the sport and his family does too. He's, he has three kids and a wife that just love it as much as he do. So, um, we got mega lucky and I'm, what I have to do is figure out, you know, I, I don't let them spend any money in IndyCar Our program has to pay for itself. And that's how I feel. I'll get longer, more time from him going forward, not robbing him every month. Yeah, that's mega. Um, you know, Mike, you and I have talked offline a little bit, even just as, as recent as this off season about these, you know, sort of technical partnerships that you've put together over the years. Yep. So I want to just dig into that a little bit. Um, talk about maybe just in a more, from a more general perspective, where you're coming from, you've been doing the sports car thing, getting into the IndyCar series at first with uh, Schmidt Peterson. And now with Andretti Autosport, yep. we obviously, we can see clearly from the outside that your, your gig with Andretti is working working positively in a lot of ways for you guys just from a performance perspective but maybe just walk us through for the listeners to kind of understand where you're coming from and why you've chosen to do it in this particular way um and you and i've talked a lot about this jr but i felt uh our expertise let's call it and the people that i had working for me really were set up to do uh sports cars uh they they also helped in the indy car quite a bit especially early on but ultimately the choice is, is, do we go out on our own and take the time it needs we need um, to, to get up to speed? And, you know, they've had these cars since, what, 2012, I think, basically. And uh, the body kits have changed a couple of times. But um, to, to have to go do that and develop that yourself, the damper programs, the aero programs, just didn't make sense to me. The numbers didn't compute. And on top of that, by the way, we look like jackasses. We're not, we're not prepared. We're not going as quick as... We could. And so what I thought was, you know, get a technical partnership and let that technical partnership make you look like a rock star, which it has. Right. Both of you, SPM, we podiumed with right away or close to it. And uh, and now we've won this big race. And But uh, Andretti, as long as you have a box tight deal, which we do, that we, we know we get what we get and we get data from the other cars. I mean, you can imagine like if I could if I could have showed you Elio's quality run while you're sitting in your car to quality and you could see what he did with his tools, where the bars were, uh, where they were arrow load wise. And you're coming to, you, you can see how that would be a benefit. Right. And, course, um, yeah. I just think I just, I, you just can't put dollars on it. Now the ego gets involved to say, I can do it as good as anybody. And yeah, sure. Maybe you could. And, but Michael JF, uh, Rob Edwards, especially over there, they, you know, they've done what they said they're going to do. We pay them for it. We pay them handsomely for it. Um, but uh, and I talked a lot about this in a lot of these interviews that we've done. You know, I can't overstate how important was this technical arrangement to win the Cindy 500. And uh, Elio's been with the best in the world with Evansky, and he he loved it. You know, so. I guess as a, as a quick follow up to that, you yeah. know, when you look at the IndyCar series and kind of where everything's going. You know, do you think this is a blueprint that other teams should be following? You know, does when if you pulled back from your particular scenario, how do you think that this, it's obviously a lot of people have seen this work great for you guys. So do you think that that starts to shape how other teams will start, you know, sort of creating alliances and that kind of thing? Or do you see it being a lot? I mean, I, when I talked to you about it, I kind of got the sense you're actually in a unique position 
to not only do this well, but, but remove your own sort of ego from, from the, from the, you know, the equation. Um, I'm just curious if you see this being something that we're, we're going to see more of or not. I listen, if I was a new team or if you put a group together to, you know, to back you or something like that, or I would, there's no, there's no read by yourself right now. No, unless you can't find someone to do a deal like this. Right. To me, it's the modern version of racing today in IndyCar, period. You know, we see it a lot over in NASCAR, right? There's a lot of alliances over NASCAR with Joe Gibbs. Richard Childress is an expert at it. Hendricks does it. It's an income stream to them that really doesn't cost them a dime. Yeah, they they lose some of their IP, right? But there's all kinds of things we sign, as you can imagine, right? But it's just, it's almost pure profit, almost, right? And, um, and I think that's pretty attractive if you get the right people together, like they got to trust us. We got to trust them. There's, it's just, it's, but if I, if I were a new team coming, um, I would absolutely do it. And I think it's the right thing to do with the right groups. And I guess, you know, I, I asked you about this just after the 500, Mike, about the, the whole aspect of you kind of beating Andretti on the track and, and how that kind of works. But, you know, I guess the kind of unwritten thing maybe about it or, or thing that's not really been spoken about very much is the fact that we're all talking about this partnership and and how you you know in a way have given back to Andretti in the sense of what you've been able to achieve you know people are still talking about that organization in relation to you and it's still you know it's still in the media and still being being spoken about so do you think maybe that's another benefit from their side that you know I think it also validates what they're doing you know they, they've had something to listen you know we've had some tough luck with Jack Harvey too not Jack's fault at all but they've had that same run of crap right now, right? And, and so, you know, they, at least they know they're validating their stuff works, right? Like what they're, you know, their their setup stuff, you know, all the air program damper stuff is all capable things. It's just sometimes, you know, racing is it's just not your time sometime and it's painful and it hurts badly, right? Uh, I've never felt a sense of anything but happiness for when we do well, whether it's, you know, Jack's got, I don't know how many fast sixes now, qualifying attempts, right? And he's probably plus, plus nine on passes going forward at the start of races now it's a it's a it's a metric we look at to see how i mean he's just doing great and that's all in andretti's setup you know we tweak it obviously for each person but um you know uh it i just i just like the model right now the model works for us and i'm grateful for it well, i think i i just want to jump in jack and say you know we've talked about this a little bit as well on the pod and i think that's actually a that's a a great response just to understand for, for people to understand another thing that Andretti benefits from this. I mean, look at their season that they've been having so far. They've had a lot of lousy luck. They've had a lot of cars that have been fast, but not really delivered and sure. qualifying or the race for, for any number of reasons, just because the tracks we go to and all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, without, without you guys there to show, okay, to, or to validate, yes. All right. This stuff, in a car that's not having these issues or that isn't going, it wasn't in that part of the race or that incident or whatever, these, all of these things are working. Uh, that is something that's helping Andretti yes. probably stay on track and, and not losing their minds questioning all of this other stuff. So that's a, that's a great point. You, you made. know how easy it is to get derailed, right? Like it's like if, if, if someone's, if you're all having problems, then it, it can come off the rails pretty damn fast. And uh, yeah, we, you know, it, it, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can come to, our contracts up this year and we're working on the next one. And, and so we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully get that through that in the next four, six weeks, something like that, and kind of keep this whole thing going. I guess you, you've spoken about um, Helio yourself and, and we've not really directed any questions about Helio at you yet. So we, we definitely should do that. And 
I guess, you know, it's easy to sit here now and say that, you know, Helio was a, a great choice to have in the team and was exactly the right person that you needed. But but kind of going back to that period last year where you were looking at, you know, bringing that second car on and, and what you were going to do with that programme. Did you speak to any other drivers and that kind of thing? And, and how confident were you that that you'd got, when you got Helio, you know, he was the perfect kind of guy for your, for your operation at that point? This was a tough one for us because we're trying to, you know, we, we, we were able to round up the money to do this, which is not insignificant. It's still millions of dollars to run six races. That's our commitment is to run six with Elio this year. That starts next at Nashville. Uh, but it's, it was like, how do we do this? What, what benefits the team, Jack? What, you know, what is it a young guy? Is it an older guy? Is it, you know, who, who's the right person? Who, who do our partners want? Who do they think the partner, the, the person that could help our partners, that kind of thing. And we all ended and settled on Elio for, you know, lots of reasons. Certainly the Indy 500 and his three wins, we thought, and, and this is no BS. This is like, what if we could be part of him winning number four? And, and what, what's that bring value to our team? I can damn well tell you what it brings now, right? And, and it's unbelievable. And we can translate that into dollars because we can track how much we've been on TV and got exposed, essentially, right? It's, and it's almost unchartable. The, the, the return on our sponsor dollars now is so over the top. And that's what we were hoping for. And we got, and, you know, we got lucky. We got to put together here, you know. Um, going forward, we, we will, you know, we'll think about, you know, what do we do with Elio for next year? We certainly want to be a part of his drive for five, right? Like there's, you know, that's, a, that's new territory for the world, right? Like nobody's done that. We'd like to have a shot at it, you know. Um, so beyond that though, I, I just don't totally know what I want to see what Elio wants to do. I don't know what he wants to do, you know, and, um, he is so good with partners and, you know, he just, he can't, one of the parties we had was Saturday. When was that? Yeah. Saturday night. Uh, sorry, no Thursday night. And uh, it was, it was for 400 of us, I think. And he gets up on the mic and he just makes everybody feel like they he's known him forever and really warm and, you know all the time in the world for everybody. And, and that's the kind of stuff that uh, we were hoping for. That's awesome. Um, I guess sort of a follow-up question, honestly, from Rory Price on Twitter. The question is, having expanded to full season to a full season car with Jack Harvey in 2020 and with the success of Elio Castroneves in the partial season entry at the Indy 500 this year, do you see Meyer Shank expanding to two full season entries in 2022 um, or in the next few years maybe? Just give us a sense of you know where your head's at now. To raise, and you know this more than anyone, I mean, to raise eight million bucks to run the series is hard to do at once. To do it twice is like hitting lightning in the same spot. It's <laughs> really tricky, right? And we have, you know, we think we can raise quite a bit of money, but we're not all the way there yet, you know? So, so you know, at the minimum we do, you know, we want to do the one full time and six, you know, maybe get it up to 10. If And if we were able to get all the pieces together, maybe, maybe do two all the way. Our ultimate goal is to run two Indy cars, and that's it. That's all I want to run. I don't want to run three at Indy. I, I just want to run two, and, um, uh, and and do it really well though, and really focus on not only the cars but the sponsors and partners to make sure that they're getting everything and then some out of it. And and I don't, I just don't, you know, I, I watch and I see like Andretti and in some of these other teams. I, I think you guys had four on your team this year, right? Yep. That's, I mean, there's just not enough human beings to do jobs to do for, I mean, it's, and you, and you, and that eventually catches up with you, doesn't it? Yeah. No, and, for sure. uh, and so I just don't have any need for that. I make enough money. I'm fine. You know, uh, 
we, we want to do is get more W's on the board. And uh, that's what my partners want. So I, I have a quick follow-up question just while you're talking through kind of the growing from say six to 10 or, or whatever that might be. At what point do you start to factor in the, the leader circle money as kind of like, what's the tipping point there in terms of number of races versus, okay, screw it. We'll just go full time because, you know, we're going to get this extra chunk. Well, so that's interesting. So you got, so that's makes me think of another thing. So Elio right now is 14th in points after one race because it's double point. He's ahead of Rossi. He's ahead of Rossi. Okay. Now, and a couple other people, high note people, right? And so, you, you know, we got to end up in the top 22 the year, from the year before, but you're also supposed to have done all the races and that's just not going to happen. So Jack Scar, theoretically, if we keep him where he's at today, would be leader circle. And that's almost a million, you know, that's a decent chunk of dough. And then Elio would not be eligible for it, even if he finished 22nd, technically, because he didn't do the whole series. So we can't count on that. So we have to we have to count on funding the whole thing. Uh, so that's a little bit tricky. Um, we thought about, you know, we did think we had some thoughts about going for it this year. But, you know, we've run this program with Jack even. We were very regimented about our plan and we did not want to change that. And I'm not going to do it now even though we were one the biggest race in the world. Um, we could do a little bit more, but I just, I, my technical arrangement won't allow me to run more than six and 21. And so we're going to keep it at that and, um, and, and, and see what can happen for next year. It's just a matter of the right partners fitting in, want to do something. And it makes you, you know, I haven't talked to Elio yet. I don't know what he wants, you know, so I need to do that too. So you've, I had, we've heard very clearly here, two cars, trying to get to two cars full-time, but that's it in the IndyCar series. Um, outside yeah. of Indy, you've obviously you've been doing the sports car thing. Are there other events or championships that you look at? Le Mans, we know that's kind of on your radar. Um, are there other yeah. things outside of this kind of core IMSA program and IndyCar program, you know, that beyond just where you'd like for them to get to that you'd like to expand to? You know, I don't have a real aggressive bone in me to, to do that. I, you know, um, the, the sports car program is a really interesting factory back program, which you, you know, you and I work our lives for. And, uh, I, and I'm going to do everything I can to stay in that for, I hope up to six or seven years. Uh, we want to go to Lamont. We're going to work on that really hard. We're going to build that program harder beyond that. You know, I don't have any real desire to do NASCAR because I like to go out to the lake on the weekends, <laughs> my boat to hang out. And that would take me away from that. Um, and uh, we we did we got fairly close to doing extreme e this year very very close and we backed out of it at the last minute for various reasons. I mean, we look at a few things, but it's you know it's going to have to be very compelling. You got to understand that I have a very large brother-in-law in Liberty Media uh, from out in your neck of the woods. They're based in Denver, and Liberty, you know, depending on what they want to do with us and, and how we can help them, you know. Cut, sky's kind of the limit to be honest with you but they know what my focus is and i want to do it well i want to do it better than we're doing it now and um let, you know I, I went and spent the weekend with aj up at mid-ohio that was cool but i was happy to parachute in and get the hell out i didn't need to deal with all the stuff so um that's about it really i think it's um i think it's important to point out we have spoken about this on the podcast before but it's it, hearing hearing your mindset is so is so interesting to hear it come from you because we can talk about it all day but you know you're you're you know it's coming from the horse's mouth when you say it and it's 
uh, I love the the kind of the regiments that you have in terms of your planning and you won't move away from what you think is the right thing to do. You did the Indy 500, then you did six car, six races, then you did 10 races, then you did the full time, you know, not rushing anything. And I think you said to Jim that you can, you know, you can spend money real quickly in motorsport if you do it the wrong way. And <laughs> that's, that's not how, you, yeah, no. that's not how you wanted to go about, you know, you know, building a future for this team basically. And I think it's just really important to highlight to the listeners that this is a, you know, everything that's happened at my shank racing is part of a longer term plan that you've put together and built from, from the start. And it's not just, you know, you turn up and you do six races and then you think, Oh, I'm going to do 10. And then, you know, it's all part of a, a longer term thing. And I think it's interesting to hear, you know, where you want to take that. And it's also interesting to hear someone who doesn't want, you know, six cars or seven cars or 15 teams across the world doing, you know, various different championships. I think it's quite refreshing just to speak to someone who just wants to do one thing and do it well or two things and do that, you know, particularly, yep. particularly well. And it's, it's interesting to hear your, your kind of mindset on that. And I think, you know, it's, you must be really just energized, you know, having made those difficult decisions where you probably could have done more things, you know, if you'd wanted to and you didn't. And it feels like maybe that the 500 is kind of like the payoff for that and, you, and you're getting a reward for it, for, for, for the approach that you've taken. The most important thing for me is the runway, right? Like I need to have a path for five years, six years, more than the big number per year, right? I, if I had a deal that I could do, make less money, but have it longer, I'm going to take that every single time. If I know my runway is totally set and paved and solid, um, then there's all kinds of things that open up for us. And, um, and that's what we're working on longer term, better deals for MSR for sustainability. Well, Mike, we can't thank you enough for your contribution to this podcast. We know you're, um, you know, you've been working hard with Helio and you've been working hard on your deals for, for next year. And also, just trying to execute with with Jack Harvey, you know, over the course of the rest of the season. And, and to be honest, just find some luck because I know people don't like to talk about luck in motorsport, but Jack has got zero of it. So I hope you can find, he does right I hope now. you can find some of that over the second half of the season. Thank you. We look forward to seeing how that plays out. And all there's left to say is to congratulate you on cementing yourself in, in Indy 500 history with such a brilliant story. So thanks for coming and telling us a, you know, a small part of that. And we hope we can have you back on later in the year. Anytime, boys. Thank you. Thank you, JR. And that was Mike Shank, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that. And it's worth saying, Mike just appears to be one of those totally down-to-earth people and in a motorsport world dominated by big teams and manufacturers and sponsors. It's been brilliant to see one man can still make a difference. But I've gone a bit Knight Rider, so I think we should move on, JR. Before I ask you about Detroit, let's polish off some Indy 500 questions from the listeners on social media, which we're very excited to receive. Thanks to everyone who's sent in any questions about either the 500 or the rest of the season um, and, and make sure you continue to do so either um, by yeah whatever social media platform that you, you wish to use, um, especially with me. You're welcome to message me on any of the platforms. Uh, and JR is at JR Hildebrand on Twitter, so feel free to direct some questions at him. So we'll start with Scott Cleary at Daytona 500A who's asked about the start of the 500, which you took part in, JR. And I always come back to this, but I remember a couple of episodes ago in the preview to the Indy 500, you did some great kind of talking about where to position your car at the start of the race and stuff like that, which was really great insight. So if you've not listened to that episode, make sure you go back and check it out. But Scott was basically asking, um, has the goal line been moved further towards start finish line? Um, you know, it seems like the starts from 10, 15, 20 years ago, the field got up to speed a lot earlier, accelerating off of turn four. And he says, I'm assuming for safety reasons, but it does make the field look a bit less spectacular as they go into turn one on the opening lap. And the only thing I wanted to add to that was it just looked a bit dangerous as well for a 500 start. And it was kind of symptomatic of some of the recent restarting we've seen in IndyCar with 
kind of going back to Daly and Askew in last year's race on that restart. And then also, obviously, we talk, talked about the, the Texas restart on the pod as well. And there was quite a few uh, gateway last year as well. So, um, yeah, what do you know if the goal line's been moved, JR? And, and what do you kind of, is it, a lot of people blame Dixon for the gateway one, not the gateway one, sorry, the Texas race, and said that he likes to start quite slowly. Do, do you think it was being controlled by, by Scott or was there another kind of factor going on there, do you think? Yeah, well, I think just to clarify, I think at Texas it was the start. It was the initial start, mm. right? Not not a reset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I would so the the go line has not substantially changed. This year it was the attenuator, so the start of pit lane, which is a little late. Like it's it's been a little bit more of an open window in the past. There have definitely been years I can think back, and it's I, I I'm not sure in my mind. I'm trying to think if. This is Kyle Novak, the race director. If the attenuator has been sort of the spot since he's been since he's been there, I don't. I think that's that even is something that's just kind of moved around a little bit. There's always a bit of a window that they give you, kind of anywhere between turn four and the attenuator is usually the start zone. I would say, and I don't think Dixon has any really specific. He's been on pole here a bunch. He doesn't always start super late. So <laughs> it's not like a, a trend necessarily with him. I would say it's down to a couple of things just in terms of why it was as late as it was. One was everybody was told that it was going to be that late. So we in in years past, I can definitely think back to years where you really don't have any idea where the leader is actually going to go. And sometimes the other guys in the front row don't like it's it's just left much more up to whoever's on pole to decide when they want to take off. It's it tends to be like that at most tracks, more like a restart is typically you've got a, a zone that once you get into that zone, you can just go. I think that there's a component of it in in this year's race. Definitely cars are running a lot of downforce. We saw in practice that you could not just get away. So I think a slow late restart enables the leader to get a better jump and have a better shot at not getting drafted up to and past going into turn one because you're the the faster the restart is, the closer, the bigger the hole you're already punching in the air and the closer to terminal velocity you are, basically. So if there was something to it from that perspective, it was a, if it was a strategic move from Dixon, I think that's probably why. I, I would I would think about it that way. To be honest with you, you see it in like the F one restarts and that kind of stuff. They just wait as late as they possibly can because the cars are shedding so much dirty air. Um, otherwise, I think the uh, frankly, I think the only way to do something about this is to either say that the restarts need to be faster and sooner, or um, or the alternative basically is to be more willing to wave off starts and restarts. If they look bad, there was definitely a period of time in the IndyCar series where that was not terribly uncommon that they would just wave stuff off. And I know that that's bad for TV. That looks bad at the start of the Indy 500 if they're waving the start off because everybody's too bunched up. But I think when you, when you get into it a little deeper, that's, that's probably the only reasonable answer here uh and besides being much more specific about how and when they need to happen in a different way but but then again you're you're taking that away you're taking the advantage that the pole sitter should have in those situations away from them so uh that's that's really all i can think of and it was lucky that it wasn't more you know that there wasn't weren't more accidents um, or that there wasn't anything, you know, it didn't, it didn't end up getting like super jumbled up, but 
I definitely, it's a good question. And I think a lot of people had that thought looking at it afterwards. Good question, Scott. And thanks for listening. I know he's a regular listener. So, so thanks for that, Scott. We appreciate it. Cmpyfa 16 um, asked the importance of the overcut and the undercut in the Indy 500. Um, and uh, yeah, basically in relation to the cautions and, and stuff like that, basically how important the undercut and the overcut was from, from what I kind of ascertained JR, it seemed like the, the kind of the actual benefit of the overcut and the undercut in the tire was minimal. It was more about the, the speed of the pit stop and getting on and off pit road was more of the, the gain or the, the loss on pit road rather than actually being anything to do with fresh tires. That's something you kind of back up, feel, feel like, yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. We, you saw it work in different ways for different guys throughout. So there was no, there was no real trend to whether the undercut or the overcut was the right move in any particular situation. It was really just situational regarding where you were on track. There were definitely some situations where, you know, if you could get released from being stuck behind some cars one way or the other, whether that was undercutting or overcutting them, that that was, that was a gain. I mean, I had at the, we were surprised at the end before our final pit stop, which was with like between 10 and 15 to go, we just ended up staying out at the end of a stint and ran, ran the tires all the way to, we were in a window that we could have pitted at any time, basically within the last, you know, we had a 15 lap window that we could have pitted just depending on what the scenario was. And I think initially the team was thinking, let's pit on the early side of this window get, get new tires on, try to rip laps in that way. But then a bunch of other guys pitted in front of me and we stayed out and I had a little sniff of a draft from a car that was like half a straightaway ahead of me. And we ripped off two twenties for the entire rest of the stint all the way to the last lap on a set of tires. Um, so that just goes to show different times during the race it was really just about where you were going to find pace. And that was different. That that was more dependent probably on where you were around other drivers. Um, even look, it's, it's a little bit like it was looking back at the IMS road course race that Roman got kind of stuck just around a lot of traffic and wasn't able to hit the lap time. And so at, at Indy, all of these pit exchanges have so much more to do with just how quick you are in and out of the pits uh, and what your pit stops are in those situations than, than any particular strategic advantage. Yeah. I think the only one thing quickly to add to that was I did go through the the sector times after the race and it's, it's blatantly obvious from the number of fastest laps or fastest laps over that stint that the driver was doing at the end of the stint that shows that tire wear wasn't the only thing at play there. Obviously people are fuel saving and stuff as well. And I think people can misinterpret, you know, when a car's going slow on track, immediately it's all about tires and it's it's not Formula One. So that's not the case. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um yeah, I think let's go on to Taib Babu, who is a regular reader at the race. I know we we really appreciate that, Taib. You you send us a lot of tweets about the the written content on the race. So thanks very much for that. Um the question is the Indy five hundred was a huge TV rating and attendance success. Should the series race on more ovals during the season? Seeing those cars race at high speed on an oval makes more visceral viewing on TV. I think I'll, I'll just before I pass this over to you, Jay, I think it's just worth mentioning that Roger Penske's talked about wanting to add more ovals back onto the calendar, and it, it, the, the calendar that we've got now is not a not a result of deciding that we don't want to do ovals anymore. It's just a you know a, it's it's many things, mostly economical, that, that the reasons why we've come to this, and obviously the pandemic played a part as well because we were due to have like Richmond on the calendar and stuff like that. So there's a few different elements that have that have meant that you know IndyCar, I've got no no ovals and and well not no ovals but fewer ovals than the normal um 
but obviously there's a reason why championships like NASCAR have gone to seven road courses. There's there's a there's an economic benefit, isn't there? But you know, what do you think? Do you think um, the series should be racing on more ovals in the season? That's the question. Look, I think I think Roger's perspective, I believe, is really just from sort of separating the product of IndyCar from other things. And that that's, that is a big, it's a big part of the heritage and tradition of the IndyCar series. It is fundamentally what makes it different at the most basic level. It's what makes it different from formula one is the fact that we run on ovals and they don't. So I guess I think that that's, that's, that I believe is at the core of his perspective on why we should be running more ovals. The, which I, I don't disagree with. I think that it is it is part of what makes having competed in the IndyCar Championship. The more ovals there are, the more different types of ovals they are. It is something that makes it much more difficult than just showing up doing the same type of thing over and over. It gives different teams a chance at different places, all that kind of stuff. So I think that that I think is is a fair argument. I guess the other piece of it is more from the fans' perspective and just how the economics of it work, which is that we've gone to a bunch of ovals over the years that they're just not successful events. Like they're, they're not packing people in the grandstands. They don't get killer TV ratings. You know, people look back at, uh, you know, the, the sort of, I don't I, I wouldn't call it the glory days of the IRL, but when people were, when they were doing, having all of these one and a half mile oval races that got, they were, you know, split second finishes and, 10 cars all packed together, you know, running around at the end of the race, Sam Hornish and Vitor, Vitor Mira and all those guys kind of back in that mid 2000s era. The reality of it is they just, whether you think they're super exciting or not, they just didn't really move the needle in terms of the direction the series was going, how it was growing, the number of people that were paying attention to it. It was something that a group of really hardcore fans were really into. And a lot of people within the championship were really into uh, but on a broader level, they just haven't really done much for the series. And so uh, I'm glad to hear that there's some interest in that from from our fans and listeners that they think it's good that it, that it's good TV. That's the thing I think that's typically hard to hard to find. I mean, I, I can say it's 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 a it's often a discussion from within the paddock that like we, are sitting, you know, you're, you're often kind of sitting there like, I just don't think it's, it's possible to tell why it's hard to race on an oval. Sometimes the cars are so fast, the, the tires and the aerodynamics of the car are designed not to like the cars are awful once they get much yaw or slip in them. So you don't really see them moving around. You've got all these little, you know, just, uh, almost like microscopic little things that make it hard to do. It's very nuanced. It's hard to get that to come across on TV. Um, so I, it's it, the series I think is a little bit between a rock and a hard place from that perspective that I think you will see a, a push to have more ovals on the schedule, maybe some different ones. We've talked about Richmond, maybe the, sh- the short tracks have tended to produce maybe more interesting racing over the years. Uh, but I, my personal opinion would be that we, we might need a bit of a shakeup in terms of the just vehicle formula kind of on some of these traps tracks to make it more obvious why it's hard, why watching an Indy car at these places is particularly interesting and try to expose it in a different way. Because the reality is just going to ovals, even if it's really close racing at the end, like Talladega style, it just doesn't, it just, the, the track record has proven itself that that all by itself 
uh, isn't enough for that to be sustainable. I think maybe the one thing that you can add to that is that hopefully this period where we haven't had many is a chance for the championship and everyone to kind of reflect on, you know, what we could do differently to make this work because, you, because you're totally right. The problem is you can't just keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. And, you know, there's a, there's a small group of fans or, or a, I wouldn't, maybe small is the wrong word because it makes it sound insignificant, but there's a, there is a group of fans who want to see more oval racing. So maybe there's a way that we can incorporate everything together with the package that you know advertises and, and attracts and and brings just a really good spectacle that that people do want to come and see and you know geography is another aspect of it isn't it you know there's there's so many things that play into the economics of running an event and you know it's very difficult to kind of put your finger on on one thing that changes it but yeah the the overwhelming thing there is you can't just keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result so there needs to be some kind of going back to the drawing board there and coming up with some some good ideas which if anyone can do it's Roger and his team so we look forward to that. James Buckingham. I'll just, I'll add super quick, just that for whatever it's worth, there are a lot of drivers and teams that would love to go to more ovals. So it's not, it's not like as a, as a group or as a community, we're happy with the fact that, you know, we're moving away from it. We're all kind of just dealing with it as, as it's come, but you know, people, whatever, bring up going back to the Milwaukee mile and stuff like this all the time. And it's like, yeah, I'd love to go to Milwaukee. Like that was always a cool race. It's super hard. It's really hard to win there. It's one of those events that you occasionally end up with somebody that just completely smokes everybody to win the race. I think that's, that's the type of thing that you like to be able to have in a championship to be able to, you know, I mean, there, there's a lot of guys that they've had career changing wins at tracks like that because of how much everybody else in the paddock knows how hard it is to be really good at those kinds of places. So um, I, I just, I, I want to make sure, I want to make sure that our listeners know that we're not trying to downplay, uh, as a group within the, within IndyCar, we'd love to see it. And uh, it's just a matter of how we figure out how to make it work. Sure. So James Buckingham at the book himself is a, an F1 and supercars fan. Um, every time I've watched the 500, I've seen a pit lane incident involving a car being crashed or a pit member being hit things that are extremely rare in other series. Why are indie pits so much more dangerous? And do you think something should be done about this? JR, have you got any initial thoughts on that? I think, uh, if you think the indie pits are dangerous now, watch a video from like the early nineties when they're coming in just absolutely flat chat at 200 and something, no pit lane speed, like absolutely insane. We did this, I'll, I'll this is a brief tangent, but uh, that we did a, there was a manufacturer test day at Indy. So it was just Chevy cars. It was a really light, uh, there was, I don't know, I was when I was racing full-time for Ed. So 2017, the both of us were there. There's a couple of Penske cars. I think maybe that was it. There was like five cars or something running on track that, track that day. And so we were all pitted all the way down at the end of, or at the whatever, at, at pit out, basically at that end of pit lane. And so they just said, okay, well, we, you know, you guys don't need to use pit lane speed for like the entire pit lane to get all the way down there. So they moved, they moved the pit lane speed barrier, like close to honestly where the bricks are. So there was a long stretch of pit lane that you could just kind of slowly work your way down. And it became this thing, like an unspoken thing among the drivers to see how deep you could get into the pits like the old days. And, and it is super sketchy like the 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 threading the needle between the wall and the pit attenuator coming off of turn because we were pitting off a of far 
coming off a four like you would in the race back in those days is completely insane that they ever did that and allowed that to happen and thought that was safe. Um, I guess fast forwarding to, to where we're at now, why you see these things happen. It's, it's a combination of factors. Really one is you are pitting off of turn four at two fifteen probably or something. So you're coming off of, off of the corner at speed, the car for all intents and purposes, like is set up very extremely poorly for slowing down in a straight line. Like the whole setup of the car is totally asymmetrical. It's designed to turn left. It it's, you're only going to be on the, it's, it's not like built for you to be on the brakes or do any of this stuff. So every, even when everything's working fine and your tires are decent and the tracks good and, and whatever, uh, it's, it's a, it's not something the car wants to do anyway, basically. Um, it's like driving a car that's got an awful alignment on it that when you hit the brakes, it wants to pull one way or the other, and it's it's doing all this kind of stuff. So the, the idea that you just see a lot of guys having trouble getting the car woed down in the first place is, is basically because of that. And that the more downforce, the, the, the more speed you bleed off, the more downforce you're bleeding off and the worse it gets in terms of how the car functions, like strictly from a mechanical perspective, once you get down under a hundred miles an hour the car is like, like you, you, you don't have much of a sense of what the car is doing. You've got no feel for it at 60 miles an hour. So, uh, just from, from those perspectives, we talked about that in terms of the, the Texas, the start of the race at Texas, like why do guys have trouble not just piling into each other? Well, that's, that's why. And it's the same thing here. The other component of it is, uh, you know, that you basically just see it's, it's a really tight pit lane. And in the race, especially, this is where you make up. I mean, I don't want to say it's where you make up, but where it's it's a performance component of being a driver in the race is how well, how quickly you can get into the pits and then back out of the pits on the other end. So it's just, it's a place where as, as the race gets more and more competitive, it's an area that you really have to focus on and try to optimize as a driver and as a team, uh, just how, how late you can break, how little time you can spend getting in the pit lane, you know, from a functional perspective, uh, the other, the other aspects of this, I know we'll, we'll talk about the brakes and kind of what was actually going on specifically in this event in the race. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to not have the car totally dialed for what you need for it to do in, in, in the race, like our carb day situation this year got all kind of screwed up and it was late and we weren't sure what was going to go on from that perspective. That's normally a time when somebody's in your ear telling you, make sure you check the brake bias, like go through all this stuff to make sure that when you get to race day, that you're not having to think about any of that. Um, it really is as simple as, if you just haven't messed with that over the course of the month, like it got set at the beginning of May at whatever, 54% front brake bias. And over the course of the month, cause you got new brakes and all this kind of stuff, it's migrated to 52% and you haven't checked that. And you're a little late getting in and the car's a little squirrely and you bang a downshift a little too early and you lock up the rears. Like that's enough to have an accident in the pit lane at Indianapolis because of all those other factors that I mentioned. So it's just an area, it's just a place that it's become really competitive. So everybody's pushing it and it's just an area where the cars don't work that well to start with. I think watching it from the outside and having a kind of view of the pit lane, it didn't look like a particularly bad 500 for 
pit lane incidents apart from what was going on with the brakes. So let's go on to that because K8T at KCS13 has asked us, please discuss what was happening with the brakes. So I think the fundamental thing that people might not understand who are not particularly aware of what goes on with IndyCar brakes, etc., is that they pull the pads away from the hub so that, you know, when you're going round the track, there's no drag and the brakes aren't dragging on the hub or anything. So you're not scrubbing off any speed when you're doing 220 miles an hour. So they're, they're, they're set, aren't they? And you can set the distance away from the, the hub, the, the brake, the brake pad is. And there was some like paddock rumor going around that maybe some of the teams were taking a, a bit of a risk with how far away from the, the hub, the pads were going to be, but I'm not hundred percent sure whether that was the case and, and whether it was much different to what we've seen in, in kind of recent years. And, Obviously, that is that it's just very difficult to slow the car down, as you'll as you'll explain in a minute from a from sitting behind the steering wheel. I think, you know, we did see we did see kind of two Penske affiliated cars. It you know it happened to Will Power and it happened to Simone Di Silvestro. So people might say that that supports the argument, the rumor that maybe Penske was taking a bit of a risk with with what they were doing with the brake setup. But also, I think Will was. I looked at the in laps for for the whole race basically and measured measured the fastest in laps of the race and will was like a second quicker than anybody else's fastest in lap and i just think will was particularly pushing very very hard and both simona and stefan have both come from you know a bit of time away from the series very easy to do something like that isn't it in the race under the under the uh you know the pressure of knowing how important these pit stops are to 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 go away for a few years and then come back into the car and then start attacking pit road on a race day, which you can't practice perfectly before that, you know, it's easy to see why that kind of thing would happen. So I'm not really sure I buy into that rumor, to be honest. And I think, I think it was just a case of one driver who was pushing extremely hard and another two drivers who, you know, have been away from the series for a little while. And we saw with Renus VK, how hard he was attacking the, the pit lane. I don't know if you saw that on the broadcast after JR, but there was there was always you know smoke coming out of VK's front wheels as, and and a little bit of like a puff out the back as well every now and again he was pushing it that hard and I think that could have happened to him as well you know it could have happened to anyone and we've seen it's a repeated issue isn't it, it happens to at least two or three people pretty much every year and I think you'll be able to explain a bit you know how difficult that is coming into the pit lane yeah I I, I agree and I think about it also from being in the cockpit you know, the, you did have a situation where you had Steph and Ryan Hunter Ray both have an issue that are both sort of on technically on the same team and Simona and will both in the same situation. So that's, that's probably the only thing to me that gives any sort of, uh, relevance or credibility to the, to the thought that there's something going on here from, a from within the team's perspectives, but my the, the the flip side to that is the teams know how important it is to not screw this up and how important it is that you have like a trusty brake pedal there that the drivers are going to have to do this so if if they knew that they were doing if the teams knew that they were doing something that was going to make that harder they would be on the radio constantly to make sure to tell you to pump up your brakes and do all this kind of stuff cuz we used to have to do that like back before at the at the or in the early part of my career like especially with the old car there was i mean the the pullback brake systems that teams were run, were running at that point were straight up just downright dangerous that if you had an issue on the track you had like no brakes for a hot second, like there was, and it was just cause they were designed that way. Like they were designed specifically to be as such. And it took a long time for that even just to get outlawed, but it was, it was like that every time you came into the pits, you'd have somebody in your ear telling you like, Hey, you know, on the back straight, like pump up the brakes a little bit, blah, 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 because they knew that that wasn't going to be an issue. So that's kind of why I'm like, 
I'm throwing cold water on, you know, that teams were doing something super tricky here is just because it's, it basically, it's a bad idea. And that if they were, um, the drivers would have had to have been notified about that. And it didn't appear as any of them were like, they were all just surprised by having these issues. So I agree with you that I think it's, I'm not, I, I, and I definitely listening to how the guys and I actually, I haven't heard Simona talk about it, but listening to how particularly Hunter Ray and, and Steph spoke about their incidents, I definitely believe them that they just had some kind of weird brake issue, like that they, that the pedal went long and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I can speak from my own perspective. Like I didn't ever have that during the race. Every time I came into the pits, I didn't tap up the brakes. I didn't build pressure. I didn't do anything. And when I went to the brakes for the first shot, they were there every time. So that is what you would expect to happen. If you didn't have that happen for whatever reason, you'd be shocked by it sort of. And then suddenly in a situation that it's like all hands on deck, just not to wreck the car. Um, but I, I guess I just, that, that leaves a little bit of a question mark in terms of like, okay, well then why did that happen? I don't, there's not a good answer for that still, but uh, I guess I would say it's some combination of a couple of guys at different points, just having the unfortunate situation where maybe they should have had a, <laughs> had more of a bleed or something before the race. Um, and, and maybe, yeah, with Simona and Will in particular, those, those incidents just looked more like kind of a typical, like the tires were wasted and you came in too hot. And then maybe on top of that had a little bit of like brake bias migration. Like I, I had a pit lane speeding, but the only pit lane speeding penalty I've ever had was from exactly that happening. It was all the way at the end of a stint. Like the tires were a little dirty when I came into the pits. Um, and I, clicked the downshift from second to first uh, a little too early locked up the rears and that was that you know so i i guess i'm i know that's not the answer that that's not like the conspiracy theory answer that everybody's looking for but i think it might be as simple as just this is kind of normal stuff that's going on here and it caught some guys out for sure for sure that's definitely the vibe i've got anyway from speaking to people sort of following the race obviously there's still investigations going on for some people and they're still trying to work things out and also that's kind of been put on hold while they focus on Detroit as well which is coming up which we'll we'll talk about in a sec but one more question like I wouldn't put it I wouldn't put it past teams to be trying stuff but it's that to me is just not an area where I feel like it makes a lot of sense yeah basically yeah so CKRE27 at CKRE27 has asked us about Graham Rahal's pit stop we just got off the phone to Graham quite recently actually and he was basically saying that he didn't want to go into too many details about what actually happened. And it was more about not, not because he was trying to be, uh, you know, covering anything up or anything like that, but just from a perspective of he wanted to kind of focus on the teamwork aspect of things. He didn't want to blame anyone or, or anything like that. And, you know, wanted to kind of focus on the the kind of win as a team, lose as a team kind of mentality, which might not be what some people want to hear when they want to hear a driver point the finger and shout and blame people. But that's, that's just how it goes. I think, you know, from 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 what we've ascertained afterwards, or from what I've ascertained as, afterwards, um, you know, they they weren't one hundred percent sure, um, or, or they didn't really realise that it wasn't the wheel wasn't on properly, basically, and that's why they didn't tell him to stop. Uh, you know, a few people have asked why didn't they radio Graham's pull over immediately, and you know, it's, it, if you think about how quickly you're changing these wheels and how quickly things go, you know, we're doing 
six second stops and the the gun's basically on and off and the car's gone you know it can it, it can be like four seconds for you to realize that you've you've got a loose nut and the car's like gone and is already like out on the track and having the crash so you know i think it, it's it's okay to question this from a safety aspect because we should always be questioning every accident that happens from a safety aspect but you also have to consider the time that these things happen and how quickly everything's moving and you can't ridicule people or, or start, you know, creating a, a kind of big problem around it based on, you know, how much time these people have actually got to do these things. So it's, it's a difficult one because I totally agree with the safety aspect of making sure that, you know, people don't go out onto the track with no wheels on because that is definitely suboptimal. Um, but it's, it's, it's difficult to blame people when things are moving so quickly, isn't it? Yeah. I guess I think that, the thing that I was the most surprised by was not that it happened, but that between the team and Graham that, I mean, he was going flat out out of the pits on the, on the warmup lane as if there was no problem. So I guess just the fact that there was no communication, he obviously didn't feel it, you know, and it's the inside rear you know, on the warm-up lane. So I, you, you, I, I just assume, obviously, Graham, Graham would know if there was something wrong. He would feel that, I think. But uh, just the lack of communication to him that there might be something wrong, that was that's probably what I, if I was in his shoes, so I'll, I'll say this on his behalf, if I was in his shoes, that's what I'd be pissed about, was that could have been, that could have been a super dangerous and really awful situation for him, let alone other drivers on track. Uh, he was just super, for, he was sort fortunate basically that where he crashed and crossed over onto the, that, I mean, in a weird way, it was fortunate that he was going fast as fast as he was, uh, that at least that would have been a little bit more like just two truck, two cars that are on track getting together, I guess, as opposed to a car that's going super slow working its way up, up onto the, onto the circuit. But either way, that's, that's like the one accident, the one type of accident that I think you almost fear the most as a driver is something like that, because it's just completely uncontrolled situation that you have, whether you're, whether you're somebody on track or you're somebody in the pits, you're just not prepared for it at all. So I think the, the, the fact that there was just no, I don't know. There was no pullback whatsoever on that situation. That's that to me is, is the biggest issue. Yeah. And I think the only thing that we can kind of really add to this is that Graham will be more upset than anybody that it happened um, because he was, he was the one who felt like he was going to win that race and he's totally. the one who was put in, in harm's way. So don't un underestimate how hard he'll be pushing behind the scenes to make sure everything's sorted there and that he's the one who will want to fix that most because of the, the potential uh, sort of outcomes that you described. So thanks everyone for your questions. Um, I'll point this out again at this point. We'll continue to pencil in special episodes, answering questions, but feel free to ask any at any time on your favorite platform of choice. And we'll do our best to fit them into the episodes to, to answer your questions. This weekend, we've got the return of Detroit, which missed out because of the pandemic last year. So a quick note for international listeners, you can watch Indy Lights return to Detroit and all the other races in that series on the Races YouTube channel if you're an international viewer. Um, JR, how tricky is it to adapt back, especially if you've, you know, you've had a bad 500 after spending a month's work on it? And it's not just the drivers, that's the mechanics, the engineers, all the people involved in it. And then to go back to a, 
you know, a proper cutthroat street circuit that hasn't been on the calendar for a year. You know, how, how challenging is that? It's, it's, it's got to be a massive challenge. I think it's usually, from a results perspective, it's usually, it's it's tended to be more challenging for the guys that do well at Indy. Like the winner always sucks at Detroit for some reason. I mean, part of That's that right. is that it's yeah. the, it has in the past been the immediate weekend following the 500. So you, you are coming off of like this crazy, you know, media day, media tour and, and all the rest of it. But I've always thought that's kind of funny to watch. Um, you know, otherwise, yeah, the fact that it's not a back-to-back weekend in this for this year uh, and that this this past weekend has been an off weekend for everybody, I think that that lets everybody that's plenty of time for everybody just to kind of get back to normal and be ready to rock and roll. Uh, I think frankly if you've had in this particular situation if you've had a lousy 500 or lousy first start to the year or or first bunch of races at the start of the year, you're looking at Detroit as the, uh, you know, in essence, a double points weekend with two races. That is your chance to get back on track. I'm sure all of the Andretti guys, the Penske guys, that's definitely going to be how they're looking at this coming into this weekend. So that would be, if, if I was in their shoes, that would definitely be my perspective as a driver and as a team. And, uh, you know, you're ready to kick off it's obviously we're not yet actually at the halfway point of the season, but it feels like the second half of the year. It's, uh, it's one of the many reasons to continue to watch the IndyCar season to its climax following its biggest event in the 500. I know a lot of people will watch the 500 and not necessarily, you know, pay attention to all of the other IndyCar races, but this one, you know, is, uh, is always a nice one to come back from, from, from the 500. And among the storylines, we'll be watching a uh, multiple drivers poised for rebounds like Alexander Rossi, Mike Shank, mentioned Helio Castaneras is ahead of in the points so Alexander will not be pleased about that we'll be looking at Kempensky win a race because they've not done that this season yet which is an unusual thing to say after six races they'd won two at this point last year so that's a that's the one we'll be watching and coming off the season where they didn't win the championship or the 500 for the first time since 2013 you know they're going to start getting pretty uh well I imagine they're very antsy already but they're going to be even more antsy uh, as we come into the second part of the season for sure uh Grosjean's back so his strong form we've seen so far will be interesting. Obviously, the street circuit was the kind of one uh, kind of dip in the form, you'd say, really, in terms of what we expected um, for, for St. Pete earlier in season. And also pit stops, in and out laps, stuff like that is, is something. And restarts, Grosjean will be working on particularly hard for the second half of the season. So we'll be keeping an eye on that as well. We've got the return of small tracks like Detroit. We've got Laguna Seca and, and the Long Beach Grand Prix to finish the season. is going to be mega. It's nice to have that one back on the, on the schedule. And uh, we'll have Nashville as well, which is a new race. So that's going to be cool. Um, and yeah, I guess another story we're watching is whether the guard will actually change and whether we're going to see some some young guys actually sustaining a fight for the championship or whether it's going to be uh, Dixon new guards at the front again. They're both a little way off at the minute. So that'll be interesting to see. So we'll be here to follow those storylines every step of the way. Don't forget to like, subscribe and leave us a review on your favourite pod- podcast platform of choice. Let us know what you thought of the Mike Shank interview. We really enjoyed it and uh, thought he was a really... Uh, a really enjoyable person to get on the podcast and very open um, you know, talking about his hangovers and the various things that he's been doing over the course of the week. And uh, yeah, thanks for your time, JR. We'll be back next week with another IndyCar podcast. Bye.